Good morning. Good morning, everyone out there. Uh, I'm Dr. John Schreiber, head of infectious diseases at Connecticut Children's, and uh, we are going to do Ask the Experts today and focus on our weekly update for COVID-19. And as well, I'm very pleased to let you know our second speaker is Mick Bolduc, who is the vaccination coordinator for the Connecticut Department of Public Health. So I think his uh, talk and then question answering questions will be extremely useful for all of you out there. Uh, it's been a busy week um, and uh, you know it's almost hard to keep up. I'm trying to advance this. All right. Got it. Welcome everyone. Uh, there's a lot going on this week, so let me update you and then we'll let um, our colleague from the Department of Public Health talk and we'll open it up for questions. Dr. Salazar is not here today, uh, so you'll be dealing uh, with myself and Dr. Below. Um, United States is plateauing out. It looks like Delta, the Delta epidemic uh, that has burned through much of the country appears to be leveling out at 140,000 cases a day. Not a great place to be. We have 100,000 people hospitalized in the United States that seems to be declining slightly. So, you know, probably Delta has reached its peak and it's beginning to go down across the country. Mostly good news on that, although the numbers are still horrific. And the death rate lags, as we've seen over and over again during this pandemic, we're at 2,000 deaths a day, and these are 2,000 preventable deaths a day. Uh, it boggles the mind, you know, we can go on on this, but uh, this is a very sad reflection of a wealthy country unable to make hard decisions required to prevent these deaths. Uh, and uh, most of these are preventable, probably not all of them, but most of them. And again, a very sad place for the United States to be where the rest of the world is clamoring for vaccines to take them we have a part of the country clamoring not to take the vaccine and thus having lots of preventable deaths, a sad place. Uh, in Connecticut and New England, we are in a much, much better place than most, most of the rest of the country. We had our Delta uh, peak here and it appears to be going down and the numbers of cases, we have a lot of community spread, but as you'll see, this has not translated uh, to deaths. The death rates are low, and you can see here we have a heavily immunized population. You're just not going to see data better than this. When I sh I'll show you some other states that are poorly immunized to see that immunizations work. And when you have 70, 80 percent of the population immunized, you've he essentially hit herd immunity, and your death rate is very low. It's not zero here, but it's low. Knock on wood, it will continue like that. And our hospitalizations hit around 400 and are going down and, and, and it's, you'd love to have zero hospitalizations, but we're nowhere near we were in the pre-immunization era here. So immunizations and public health measures work. And in New England and Connecticut, we stand out as a region that has embraced science. And thus, uh, although we have a lot of community uh, spread of Delta variant right now, our hospitalizations and deaths have not gone to unmanageable levels. We are in control of this. And what we've really done in New England is we've converted this to an endemic viral infection. It's no longer epidemic. This is an endemic infection that we are controlling with immunization and public health measures, a much better place to be. And frankly, it's where the entire United States should be today, but is not, it just is what it is. This is where the whole country should be, moving this to an endemic viral infection, not an epidemic. Connecticut has widespread community spread still. There's some townships that are very low, but it's all over the place. And thus vigilance needs to continue because we have still unimmunized people and high risk people who perhaps didn't make a good response to the vaccine because they're immunocompromised or other reasons. And so we have to continue our vigilance until this community spread goes down. And that's one of the areas where particularly uh, the, um, the very divisive debate about masks in school, it's important to recognize it's very difficult to abandon public health measures when everyone is still not immunized and you have a lot of community spread, particularly children are not immunized yet. So it's important to recognize we're not out of the woods yet. This is a marathon. We're in the last four or five miles of the marathon in New England and Connecticut, but it's not done yet. 
when you run a marathon the last four miles, you don't throw up your hands and say, I'm done and walk to the finish line. You basically keep going. We're going to need to keep going until we immunize most of our population, including children, and that appears to be on the horizon. Now, Connecticut new cases are predominantly in the not fully vaccinated population. I showed this to you a couple of weeks ago. It's been very consistent of about 70% of all new cases are in people who are not fully vaccinated, about 30% in fully vaccinated. I don't have the data of the hospitalizations, but I've been told the, the vast majority are unimmunized, but not all, but the vast majority are. This is a summary uh, for Connecticut this week, and you can see the, what I want to show you is test positivity hovering around 3%, not terrible. I remember I told you in some of the states that have huge outbreaks of Delta, it's around 20%. So we have a moderate test positivity. I'd like it to be below 1%, but it's not terrible. And we have about 300 patients in the state hospitalized with COVID-19, a manageable number. Uh, unlike some of the other states where every ICU bed is now filled. So we have converted this pandemic to an endemic infection that we are controlling in terms of bad outcomes. This is where the country needs to go. Connecticut immunization rates are among the best in the world. Uh, you can see 12 and up, which is really what it's licensed for, about 80% of the population is now fully vaccinated. And in the high-risk groups, it's virtually 100%. These are fantastic figures. Um, I admire and respect the leadership of the state and the people who live in Connecticut. And frankly, the rest of New England is very similar for embracing science, rolling up their sleeves and taking care of each other so that we have now, in a sense, conquered this pandemic and flipped it to an endemic disease. Every governor should be looking at these numbers and our hospitalization rate and our death rate and trying to execute on what New England has done to conquer this pandemic. Unfortunately, as you'll see later, that's not what's happening. Hotspots in the United States, unfortunately, you'll see now New England is good. There is one county in Maine that's under immunized and has a lot of COVID right now, but otherwise New England stands out, you can see here. Uh, as really an area of um, very, very low intensity COVID. The big area now is Appalachia, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, Alabama continues to be relatively desperate. And then we have uh, enormous outbreaks in Wyoming, Idaho, and some of the states that are uh, very under immunized um, and is burning through rural areas now and overwhelming community hospitals in rural areas. So. This is what's going on. Uh, Alaska now has a, a big outbreak. They really got going very early with immunizations and then it sort of lagged. And they, they also have a, a number of rural outbreaks there that are quite intense. Let's focus on Tennessee. This is not what Connecticut looks like. This is Tennessee. And you can see the numbers of new cases per 100,000 are astronomical. They're in the hundreds in most of the townships in Tennessee. And you can see this is an epidemic phase uh, in the state. There's 10,000 new cases a day. Um, you know, unbelievable, this is preventable. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the leadership and the population of Tennessee have not embraced those requirements, which would convert this to an, a, a more endemic situation. The vaccination rate is mediocre. And you can see, and this goes back to the original herd immunity thought process that was presented over and over again. When you're immunizing 40, 50% of the population, it's not enough to prevent epidemic spread. You really got to get up into the 70s and 80s. And this was talked about for months during the pandemic as that was our goal. And you can see as New England has reached that goal, it's worked. States that haven't reached that goal, it is not working. So they are very under immunized in Tennessee and the result has been a, a wild epidemic of the Delta variant. And uh, the hospitalizations exceed that which they saw in the winter. Uh, it's over 3,000, 3,500 hospitalized. It may be leveling off now. Tennessee's capacity is essentially now exceeded in terms of hospitalizations. And if you have a heart attack, it's a challenge because your ability to get seen in these hospitals uh, has been denigrated by the overwhelming COVID. And this is a big issue in some of the other states in the far west as well, where, where routine medical care, or frankly, emergency medical care is now being rationed. 
Uh, and the deaths are rapidly increasing. They lag, you know, it's 100 deaths a day or more in Tennessee. These are preventable deaths, preventable deaths. And uh, again, um, I, I only wish it were different. I'm just showing you the facts right now. And the facts are very clear. You look at New England, heavily immunized, good public health measures. We are in charge of this epidemic now. And you look at other states that have thrown up their hands for political or other reasons, and they are not in control of this. And uh, again, uh, all of us need to learn by watching the data in real time. Now let's talk about variants. And this is another reason for us to maintain our vigilance. And, and I know uh, people are, think the marathon's over and I've talked to parents who don't wanna wear masks and the whole nine yards, I get it. Everyone's frustrated. The reality is though, we're going to need to maintain vigilance. So this is an interesting paper. There's another variant that has multiple mutations called the Lambda variant, and it's been seen in South America. And in this paper, they were able to show uh, that the Lambda variant, remember it's the same thing where the neutralizing antibodies, the amount required is more in these variants. And this is very true with the Lambda variant. So 1.5 fold decrease in ability to neutralize the virus. Um, and this is people who are immune. So it's going to be a challenge if this takes off. Now, what seems to be interesting is the Lambda variant doesn't seem to be as contagious as the Delta variant. And right now, the Delta variant dominates um, in most of the United States, but we need to keep watch on this. And there's another paper uh, that came out of um, Peru that showed uh, the Lambda variant is escaping the uh, immune response to the Chinese vaccine, Coronavac, which is what was given to the population of that country. Uh, and the data show uh, that Coronavac is not particularly effective against this Lambda variant. And uh, we, I don't have data to show you on Pfizer or Moderna or J&J. I just don't have those data yet. But um, something, again, the Lambda variant, we're going to need to keep watch on to make sure we don't have immune escape uh, in vaccinated people. Now, uh, this is another very important thing, and I believe this is probably why you noticed this morning that the head of the CDC overrode the ACIP, which I've never seen before, um, in that boosters will be given as well to those people who are at high risk for being around infected people. What happened yesterday was the ACIP agreed with the FDA, except for one thing. They said, let's, let's boost, give a third dose of Pfizer to 65 and above and high risk people with other medical issues, but let's hold off on healthcare providers. And uh, Dr. Walensky overrode that decision and the uh, vaccine booster will be offered to those at high risk of exposure to positive people, which would be providers and probably teachers and others. These are very good data. This came out of um, UC San Diego. And what they showed here it's, it's, uh, was that as Delta virus burned through California, this is the effectiveness of the mRNA vaccines going by month. And you can see 90% effective in March, 96% in April. This is healthcare providers in the system, healthcare system. But then when Delta hit in July, it dropped down to 65% efficacy because these people were now six, seven months out and they were getting, and none of the people didn't get very sick and end up in the hospital, they got infected. And you can see the decline in efficacy of two dose of mRNA vaccine as Delta burned through that part of California and hit this health system hard. And I believe these sort of data factored into Dr. Walensky's decision to offer a booster to healthcare providers. And I think it, in my opinion, was the, was the correct choice. Now let's talk about, there's a lot out there, Moderna's better than Pfizer and J&J &J and, and this and that. And, and um, the uh, CDC MMWR just last week actually did some, showed some data on this. And these are anti-receptor, anti-spike protein IgG levels um, and after the various vaccines. And the fact is, is that Moderna, which is here, is actually a little bit better than Pfizer for antibody titers. And it's much better than the J&J &J vaccine. And um, these are, this, is, uh, this is one epitope or one site on the virus, and this is spike protein, uh, anti-spike protein antibodies. Moderna, a little bit better than Pfizer and much better than J&J. &J. So what they in concluded was that there were higher titers with the Moderna vaccine, and this was also effectiveness. It translated that Moderna was 93% effective 
and Pfizer 88% from March to August of this year. Honestly, these are extremely minor differences, um, but very interesting data for us to consider as we move forward. And, and something, remember that the Moderna vaccine is 100 micrograms dose of mRNA and the Pfizer is 30. These are for adult doses. So it could be dose related also. Now, what the heck is long haul syndrome? This is a very interesting early paper. I can't tell you this is the only reason, but they found in people who were very sick with, um, with COVID-19, developed antibodies against their own ACE2 receptors. So you can see these red dots are people who are getting better from COVID, who are very sick. And look, all the red dots are anti-ACE2 receptor antibodies that were made by a lot of people. Uh, who had this syndrome that they followed. So um, it's very interesting. So is long haul a, a, an autoimmune disorder that some people get by making antibodies against their own ACE2 receptors? Could be. So I think we're beginning to tease out what long haul is, and that will help us treat it better, obviously. If it is antibody mediated, we actually know how to shut that down. There are ways we can do that. So I think um, this is fascinating data and hopefully will lead to more effective therapies against um, long haul if it is autoantibody induced. So stay watch on this. We'll see if this pans out. Now, why the difference between adult and pediatric COVID-19 clinical disease? Another puzzler, although it says kids don't get sick, some kids do get sick. And, and remember, we'll talk about that in a minute. But if you look at the severity of disease, elderly are much worse than children in terms of the numbers of elderly who will get very sick from COVID. And it turns out there's, we're beginning to tease that out too. What we found is that when COVID-19 infects you, there's a huge innate immune response. And those are the cytokines before you make antibodies. You make all these cytokines and, and things that try to attack foreign objects coming into your body like viruses. And it turns out that children make these as well, but they go away, they go away much faster than adults. And here's a nice cartoon that shows that what they showed here are adults and the, their viral load goes up and then they begin to recover and it goes down. But look at their inflammatory responses. They just go on and on and on. And here in children, there's faster resolution. Uh, this is inflammation, the red there's faster resolution of that inflammation. It drops quite quickly, and then they make an immune response. So it could be this difference between inflammation and how fast it goes away in children would be one of the keys to why adults get so much sicker. It's, it's a hint. We'll see if this pans out as well, but I always like to throw things at you early so we can begin to try to answer some of these questions. This might be one of the explanations for the difference between children an adult's response to infection with this virus. mRNA vaccines. I had the pleasure of talking to an employee the other day who doesn't want to take the vaccine. It's new, it's experimental, et cetera. And I heard all the arguments that are coming from Facebook and Twitter, and I don't know where. Um, and it turns out, if you really look at the history of mRNA vaccines, they're actually not new. This is decades of research, and in fact, some of it has resulted in some personality conflicts between some of the inventors that I mentioned to you a few weeks ago. But hundreds of scientists have worked on this, and um, let's just review what, what the vaccine is, is messenger RNA that encodes for a certain spike protein and its confirmation. And they've substituted, actually, um, uridine is substituted with pseudouridine, which makes uh, these very um, less uh, immunoreactive. So they go in the cell, oops, let me go back. They go in the cell and they get in the endoplasmic reticulum and they ask, they tell your body to make spike protein for a day or so and then make immune response to that spike protein. So what the vaccines are, are the mRNA and they're surrounded by a fat globule, basically. It's a nanoparticle of fat and, uh, and that's what the vaccines are. Well, it turns out this is actually not new. And um, what I want to show you is the timeline, and the, it's hard to read, and I apologize for that, but actually the clinical trials using mRNA vaccines began in 2001, and there have been, there have been repeated clinical trials up until the new vaccines uh, using the same technology 
for COVID-19. So it turns out that technology is actually 20 years old and clinical trials with mRNA vaccines have been ongoing for 20 years. I think it's very important for people to understand that. It's not something that dropped out of the sky and is new. It's been developed for over 20 years, as have the lipid nanoparticles used to coat the vaccine. So I think it was important to show this, and certainly it's helped me explain this better to individuals who are still concerned that the technology is experimental, and that's not correct. Safety of the Pfizer vaccine in a nationwide setting. These are great data. They're from Israel. They were just published the 23rd um, in the New England Journal of Medicine. These data are from 850,000 individuals who got the Pfizer vaccine and a similar number in a control group were infected. And it's great because, you know, uh, some countries actually are very centralized and they can follow people like this. We can't, but they can. And so the data are fascinating and really important for us. So what are the absolute risk of this vaccine compared to what you get if you're infected? And these are fantastic data. The tan bars are if you're infected and the blue bars, the risk difference for those who got the Pfizer vaccine. So you can see for acute kidney injury, the vaccine is protective. Uh, and in fact, um, it's very, very common with infection with SARS-CoV-2, not a good situation. Appendicitis, there's a slight increase with immunization and as well as with the infection. And, you know, it's very small, something to watch. Arrhythmias, very common with infection, doesn't happen with the Pfizer vaccine. Very important data. A lot of people who are recovering from COVID SARS have had their heart inflamed and they get arrhythmias and myocarditis. Thrombosis does not occur with the Pfizer vaccine. I had to explain this yesterday to an individual who was convinced uh, that it was a problem. Very common, deep vein thrombosis if you're infected. Herpes zoster is increased when you get the Pfizer vaccine. There's a slight increase in incidence of reactivation of chickenpox. It's there, something you have to talk about. Intracranial hemorrhage occurs with disease, does not occur with the vaccine. Lymphadenopathy occurs with the vaccine commonly in the area of the arm that you were injected, and that's just one of the side effects. And yes, they, they recorded that. Myocardial infarction, much more common if you're infected. And in fact, there's no difference from baseline with the vaccine. Myocarditis, much, you know, much more common if you're infected. A slight increase in immunized individuals, mostly in young males. Pericarditis, much more common if you're infected. And pulmonary embolism, very common in those people infected. So these are data of 850,000 people immunized with the Pfizer vaccine. So I look on this, I say lymphadenopathy is a common side effect. Very small number might have reactivation of chickenpox and they recover as zoster recovers. Uh, and then myocarditis, pericarditis, myocarditis, slight, slight increase slight, slight increase. So an appendicitis, hard to know. There might be a little bit of an increase there. So I think these are the facts. These are the data. Getting the disease is much, much, much worse for you for all of these risks. Uh, and I think these are important data to share with our patients and families, particularly our families, as we move to pediatric immunizations. Now, um, Pfizer, getting to that, um, this is a press release. And again, I, I chafe with this. I wish Pfizer and BioNTech had actually shared the data in detail when they make this press release. It is not peer reviewed yet, but there was a press release on Monday. And what they found is a phase two, three study, children six months to 11 years of age, 2,268. And then they also had five to 11. So we're going to focus on the five to 11 group they got 10 micrograms of dose in two doses over three weeks and got very high antibody titers uh, and very few side effects. Same, same stuff as they got with adults, although we have not seen all of the data. And these data are going to need to be presented to the FDA. They're very promising uh, for an emergency use authorization for age 5 to 12 or 5 to 11. But I have not seen the data yet, and the FDA, that needs to be presented to the FDA, which it will be in the next few weeks, and we'll get, all get to see it and decide with our patients, is this the right thing for their families? But it's very exciting. And again, another 
piece of the, our ability to flip this to an endemic infection that doesn't hurt a lot of people. And I think that's where we want this to be. Um, and uh, this is another step in that process. It's very exciting, particularly for us in pediatrics. Um, disinformation of the month. So I'm not gonna talk about ivermectin because I just, you know, too many people, but Betadine is the new one. Okay, this is on Twitter. I get all of my medical information from Twitter. Uh, we really should not. And this is an individual, I, don't, I have no idea who this person is, who says, um, you know, sleep eight hours, which I haven't done in months, eat fresh food, which I do, slow food, go out for early morning sun, and gargle with betadine diluted in water, and don't bathe. So, and there are thousands of people who read this and are doing it. And here's another individual, I, I, my COVID test came back positive, I don't feel well, I have terrible, the worst flu I've ever had. And this guy says, sure, gargle with betadine. So this has gotten so bad that the betadine companies had to put on their website that no, you cannot gargle with it. It's poisonous, okay? It's made for putting on your on a cut and a scrape, should not be used as gargle. It's never worked, been demonstrated, and it's also toxic. So they've had to put this on their website because betadine's being depleted from all the drugstores. This is nuts. And again, as we guide our patients and our families to look at the facts and look at things that are credible. This is not credible. It's going to hurt some people. And unfortunately, it's out there on social media. And lastly, you know, the politics of this, I, I'm not Republican or Democrat. I'm an independent. I, I have to say that because, but this is a problem for us as a country. You've seen Connecticut, Vermont, Massachusetts. We are in charge of this epidemic right now. We, it, it's a lot of community spread, but it's not translating to death and ICU hospitalizations because we're so immunized. Here's Mississippi. Mississippi is um, profoundly under immunized, less than 50% fully vaccinated. Even in the elderly group, it's not enough. And Mississippi has the highest death rate of all US states and in the world, except for Peru. In the world, 300 deaths per 100,000 now um, in Mississippi. I, I just boggles my mind that the United States of America in 2021, where we have adequate more than adequate doses of this vaccine to have prevented this that mississippi is now on par with a third world country that doesn't have vaccines in terms of its death rate from COVID 19 and the governor his response to this is any mandates for vaccination or wearing a mask um, attacks hardworking americans and i i i think we have to call this out uh this is uh, not leadership uh, when you have the highest death rate among really in the world besides Peru, you should be out there saying get vaccinated, wear a mask, and let's get Mississippi out of this mess. And instead, don't wear a mask unless you feel like it and don't get vaccinated unless you feel like it. So it's where we are as a country uh, and it's something we are going to continue to have to say is wrong. I cannot sit still and watch something like this and say this is right, this is not right. Mississippi could be like us and have really very few deaths, 306 deaths per 100,000, uh, one in every 326 people in Mississippi have died from COVID-19. I, I just boggles my mind. So the good, the bad, the ugly. And uh, by the way, I'm very pleased to let you know uh, that our next speaker is head of immunizations for Department of Public Health. He'll be on just a minute for the Connecticut DPH, a very important um, person for us to talk, hear from, and then ask questions to. So New England and Connecticut have widespread community COVID-19 infections, but a very manageable hospitalization and death rate. There's still some, but it's very few. It's due to our high immunization rates and public health measures. And when I hear people pushing back about masks, I say, take a deep breath. The marathon's not done. We're close, but it's not done. And let's not end up like Mississippi. As COVID-19 becomes endemic in New England, the data suggests very clearly for anyone to see that highly immunized states could resume a more normal situation with very few deaths. We are doing that in Connecticut and Massachusetts and Maine and Vermont, and Maine has one county that's a problem. But so this is where the whole country should go. So despite the clear data showing this, um, that immunization rates will greatly reduce mortality and hospitalizations, some politicians to continue to hurt their own constituents with confusing anti-vaccine rhetoric. Expansion of immunization to other less wealthy countries is going to be critical 
to reducing loss of life in those countries and, re and reducing the emergence of more variants. We cannot ignore the rest of the world. This will come back to us. We've got to get vaccines out to the rest of the world. Third doses of Pfizer, uh, the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer first, although Moderna has good data that I think we'll be seeing shortly. For elderly and those at high risk for exposure, uh, has, uh, this was one day out of date, is, has been approved. And so we need to get ready. Nursing homes, elderly need to get their booster dose. And uh, then those of us who are at high risk for exposure to positive patients should be boosted as well, six months or more out from your two doses. Pfizer pediatric data, press release, not peer reviewed yet, but shows excellent safety and immunogenicity in children five to 11. I'm very excited about that. We'll see how that unfolds as we see the data. Now, I'm very pleased to have our next speaker, uh, um, Mick, will talk about uh, the immunization program at Connecticut Department of Public Health. And I know all of us are going to have lots of questions. Mick, you're on. Thank you, Dr. Shriver. Uh, that was fantastic. Uh, lots of great information there. And at the end of my presentation, I know Liz had forwarded me some questions that you had on COVID storage because there's a lot of information that uh, providers want to know as far as getting storage for COVID vaccines. If you haven't already started to provide COVID vaccines in your practices. So I'm going to address a couple of those questions that Liz had forwarded to me after my presentation. Uh, we'll get to that in a couple minutes. But first, I wanted to talk about Public Act 21-6. Next slide, please. So just a little overview, uh, Public Act 21-6, what does it mean? Who does it impact? And then some changes in the medical exemption that are important for everyone to know. Next slide, please. So Public Act 21-6 uh, is an act concerning immunizations, which effectively eliminates religious exemptions with limited exceptions. And so we're gonna talk about those limited exceptions because the legislature did put in there some caveats. So there are still some students that are allowed to continue with the religious exemptions. And we're gonna go through that because there has been some confusion as far as who still can use the religious exemptions. The law was passed by the state legislature on April 27th of this year. And that is a very important date to know and then it was signed into law by Governor Lamont the following day, April 28th. Next slide, please. So religious exemptions are now only available under the following circumstances. A student must have been enrolled in grades K through 12 on or before April 28th, 2021, and must have submitted a valid religious exemption prior to the passage of the bill. So they had to have that on file by midnight, April 27th, 2021. Students have to meet both of the above conditions in order to be eligible for a religious exemption. Next slide. The law applies to all schools in Connecticut, both public and private. And the law does allow for a religious exemption to follow a student who transfers schools, provided that they were enrolled before April 28th and had a valid religious exemption on file by midnight, April 27th. So it does follow them as long as they are transferring schools and it will continue to follow them all the way through the time they graduate. Next slide, please. So what is a valid religious exemption? Just a reminder, and this goes back to 2015 when that changed under the law an exemption must come from a parent or guardian of the child that specifies that the immunization is contrary to the religious beliefs of the child or parent or guardian, that the statement be properly acknowledged by one of the following individuals, a judge, a clerk or deputy clerk of a court, a town clerk, a notary, justice of the peace, an attorney admitted to Connecticut, or a school nurse. Now, a lot of the school nurses will not sign off on this, but there are other options there, plenty of other options there that the parent could have gone to, but it has to be acknowledged by one of those individuals. 
There's no particular form that has to be used, and there's no requirement that both parents or guardians have to sign the statement. Only that the student had to be enrolled in grades K through 12, and that the exemption be presented and fully executed no later than midnight, April 27th. Next slide, please. If the religious exemption request was submitted prior to April 28th, but is missing one or more of the required components, the statement is legally invalid and cannot be accepted as a basis for a religious exemption. Next slide, please. So for pre-K students, and this is where it gets very confusing. There's been a lot of questions around pre-K students. It would have been a lot easier if the legislation did not carve out this little piece for pre-K students, but they did. So pre-K students who enrolled or registered for kindergarten for this fall, so they are in kindergarten right now, and they registered or enrolled before April 28th, and they submitted a valid religious exemption by midnight April 27th, they are also grandfathered in. So I'll say that again because, again, there have been a lot of questions around this. If they were in pre-K, registered and enrolled for kindergarten for this fall by April 28th, and submitted a valid religious exemption by midnight April 27th, they are grandfathered in. We had a lot of questions around this. We had a lot of parents that were basically submitting religious exemptions for their kids who were not even in pre-K, uh, kids that were one and two years of age and were going to pre-K three, four years down the road. They had to be going to kindergarten this year, this fall, in order for this to apply. Next slide, please. Now, pre-K students who did not enroll by that April 28th deadline, but did present a valid religious exemption to the school by April 27th, have until September 1st of next year, or within 14 days after transferring schools, whichever is later, to become fully compliant with the immunization requirements. So what the legislature basically did is they said, if you have a religious exemption, and even if you're completely unimmunized, it gives you more or less 16 months to get into compliance and become fully immunized. So it gives that child more than enough time to get fully immunized. It doesn't mean that you wait until August of 2022 to start the series. It means by September 1st of 2022, you need to be fully compliant with the immunization requirements. Next slide, please. Does this bill cover COVID-19? No, it does not. As we know, right now, COVID-19 vaccines are not licensed for anyone under the age of 12. That's probably going to change in the next couple of months. A lot of parents did submit religious exemption forms because they are afraid that COVID-19 is going to be required at some point in the future. But this bill does not cover COVID-19 vaccines. Next slide, please. What about students who had a valid religious exemption form from a prior school year, but withdrew from school and now wish to exercise that same exemption upon their return to school? Can they do so? Yes, they can. So if they were in school, they had an exemption on, on file, maybe they were homeschooled for a year due to uh, COVID-19, and now they are back in school, yes, that exemption still exists. As long as they had that exemption on file by the deadline and were enrolled by April 28th. Next slide, please. So we're gonna talk a minute about medical exemptions because the language did change under 21-6 for medical exemptions. By October 1st, which is next week, DPH must develop and make available on our website a new medical exemption certificate for use by physicians, PAs, or APRNs, stating that in their opinion why a required vaccination is medically contraindicated due to the physical condition of such person. The certificate shall include definitions of contraindications and precautions and a list of those recognized by the CDC for each required vaccine 
from which a physician PA or APRN can select on behalf of that patient. Next slide, please. However, the physician PA or APRN may in their discretion record a medical contraindication or precaution not recognized by CDC, including any autoimmune disorder, family history of any autoimmune disorder, family history of any reaction to a vaccination, genetic predisposition to any reaction to a vaccination as determined through genetic testing, and a previous documented reaction of a person that is correlated to a vaccination. So this is very important because what happened in California several years ago when they did away with the religious exemptions is they saw a huge spike in medical exemptions. They had certain physicians that were writing astronomical amounts of medical exemptions. They were publicizing that they would write out medical exemptions and they had several physicians who were brought up on charges because they were writing out bogus medical exemptions. Hopefully that won't be the case here. Hopefully we won't see physicians, PAs or APRNs that are writing out medical exemptions that really shouldn't be medical exemptions. We'll have to keep a close eye on this. Um, normally, when we do our school surveys over the course of the last 20 years, we only have about 0.2 to 0.3% of medical exemptions on those surveys. We'll have to keep a, 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 you know, a close look at that and see if we do see a dramatic increase in that uh, in the coming years. Next slide, please. DPH is also required to establish an advisory committee on medical contraindicated vaccinations for the purpose of advising our commissioner on issues concerning medical exemptions. However, the advisory committee is not responsible for con confirming or denying a medical exemption for any individual. Amongst the, that duties of the advisory committee is to calculate the ratio of school nurses to students in each public and non-public school and the funding issues surrounding such ratio and assess whether immunization should be required more frequently than prior to enrollment and prior to seventh grade. DPH, along with the State Department of Education and the Office of Early Childhood, must evaluate all the data collected concerning medical exemptions and submit a report by January 1st of 2022 and annually thereafter to the state legislature. Now, normally we send out a uh, schools, our school surveys to all the schools in the state around this time. So it does not leave us a lot of time to get that information out to the schools, calculate all that data, evaluate all that data, and submit a report to the legislature. But we have to have that to the legislature by January 1st. And then as far as the advisory committee goes, uh, we're supposed to meet, our first meeting is supposed to be next week by October 1st. However, Unfortunately, a lot of the members of the legislature who were supposed to make their selections for members of that committee have not done so. So we're supposed to be having an 11 member uh, advisory committee and right now we only have five members that have been established. So until we get more members of the legislature making their selections for that committee, we can't have our first meeting. Next slide, please. Another piece of that legislation is that each individual and group insurance policy in a state that provides prescription drug, drug coverage is required to provide immunizations as well as coverage for at least a 20 minute conversation between the healthcare provider authorized to administer immunizations and the individual patient. And the idea behind this was that if you had parents that were on the fence, this conversation could take place about the importance of getting their child immunized and hopefully convince them of the importance of immunizations. Whether that will work or not remains to be seen, uh, but you know the idea uh, on its merits is good. Whether it actually translates into more children being vaccinated, we'll have to wait and see. Next slide, please. There is my contact information. Uh, I'd be happy to take some questions. I know Liz had some uh, questions she forwarded to me on COVID. So I'm going to uh, try and address those now. I know one, one of the questions was, what is required for a pediatric office to store COVID vaccine? So we have the Connecticut Vaccine Program, which is the CVP. We also have our COVP, which is our COVID vaccine program. So once you enroll in the COVID vaccine program, we have several staff that go through the storage and handling. They do a virtual site visit 
which goes through whether or not you have sufficient storage, which is a standalone refrigerator and a standalone freezer for COVID vaccines. One of the questions that comes up is specifically around the number of doses that you need to order because Pfizer ships 1,170 doses. You don't have to order 1,170 doses. If you need 10 doses, if you need 20 doses, if you need 100 doses, you can order whatever you need for your office and we will make sure that you get whatever you need for your office. You don't need to order 1,170 doses or 100 doses or 50 doses if you only need 10 or 20 doses. But you do need to have sufficient freezer or the refrigerator and a digital data logger, which we can provide to you free of charge. But you do have to go through that virtual storage and handling visit before you're allowed to receive and order and receive the COVID vaccines. Uh, one of the other issues is how are you handling the um, question as to whether or not you're going to have wastage. Because if you only have, say, three or four patients that need vaccine on a certain day and you have a multi-dose vial, once you puncture that vial, you're going to have wastage. There's no way around that, unfortunately. We know there's going to be wastage. If you have a 10-dose vial and you only have three or four patients coming in that day, we don't advocate for you to send those patients away. We know there's going to be wastage. There's wastage that's happening every single day. There's nothing we can do about that, unfortunately, right now. Until Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson come up with single-dose vials, there's nothing we can do to stem the tide of wastage. Unless you can have a clinic where you can say, okay, we're going to bring in everybody at the same time, which logistically is very difficult to do. We know you're very busy. We're dealing with back to school physicals, we're uh, back to school immunizations, we're dealing with flu vaccines. Logistically, it's very hard for practices right now. And so you do the best you can. And if you have some wastage, you have some wastage. Uh, I was on the phone the other day with a practice and they were really struggling as to whether or not to offer COVID vaccines because they don't have the staff to do it. There are other options to send your patients to go and get the COVID vaccine if you can't do it. If you don't have the staff, if logistically it's too much for you, if you can't do it right now, but you can do it three months down the road or six months down the road, you have to make that decision based on what you can do and, and what you think you can do right now. And if there's gonna be some wastage, there's gonna be some wastage. We can't do anything about that until the manufacturers change and get single dose vials out there. If there's any other questions, I'd be happy to take those right now. Thank you, Mick. Uh, it was very helpful. Um, we're now going to open it up to our usual Ask the Experts questions. Um, there'll be some for me and some for Mick Bolduc and DPH. So, Anne-Marie, um, why don't you get rolling? Good morning. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Schreiber, and thank you, Mick, for joining us this morning. So we have several questions, and if we don't get to all of them, we'll certainly make sure we answer them um, afterwards online. So Mick, starting um, with a question for you, um, a question from Anna Jett, who's asking, is the religious exemption valid for transfers in from out-of-state students if they have filed exemptions prior to April 28th in another state? So out-of-state exemptions are not allowed. They have to be in-state. We, we get that question quite a bit. Um, Out-of-state exemptions are not valid in the state of Connecticut. Thank you. Another question from uh, Dr. Um, Alexand Maria Alexandra Lopez, who's asking, um, you know, this is a little bit around the liability of a practice who perhaps is allowing patients who've um, exercised their um, religious exemption and then there's exposure in their waiting room or in their practice, either from the, for the individual who has the exemption and they become um, ill or vice versa, they expose someone else. Um, is there any, any discussion about that, any coverage or, um, you know, what is the liability there? Liability on the practice, if they, the practice. Yes, for the yeah, so if they allow a patient to file a religious exemption, the question is if there's somebody who's not immunized and could mm -hmm. be positive in the office 
And I guess my suggestion to that is everybody needs to wear a mask, and this is why. Um, you don't know uh, if somebody might have dealt at the moment if they're mildly symptomatic. And so, again, uh, patients and families waiting in your waiting room should be masked and uh, ditto with the providers. And that would prevent, even if somebody's positive, if everybody's masked, it's unlikely to be an issue. Thank you. Gail Carras asks, what is the freezer storage requirements and temperature range? I'm assuming we're talking about COVID vaccine here. Uh, and uh, that is for the, I'm sorry, that is for the Pfizer vaccine. That's for you, yes, Mick. Um, what yes, temperatures no. do you have to have in your office to do this? Yeah, so so the, the Pfizer vaccine can now be stored in the, you can, we ask that you keep it in the freezer and then you can be put in the refrigerator actually for up to 31 days. So it can be kept in the freezer, um, stored in the, in the freezer at uh, I believe it's it's up to 25 below. Um, and then it'd be when you're ready to use it, once you put it in the refrigerator, you have 30 days to use it. So um, it can, you know, it's no longer, you don't, when it originally came out, you needed that cold storage freezer. You no longer need to have the cold storage freezer. So it can be kept at regular freezer temperatures now, but once you put it in the refrigerator, that starts the clock and you have 30 days to use it from that time frame. So um, minus 25 in the freezer. Then once you're ready to use it and you put it in the refrigerator, you have 30 days to use it from that point forward. Thank you. And and uh, Mick and Dr. Schreiber, um, Dr. Lopez did uh, clarify she was talking about other preventable diseases um, in the waiting room. So I don't know if that, I mean, still the masks are helpful there as well. You know, it's interesting um, in, in the, I guess, in some of the Asian countries during flu season, people wear masks and it's sort of what you do to prevent flu spread. So we have COVID right now. So the waiting room is going to be masked. And I, I would suggest to you, it's probably going to reduce spread of other respiratory infections this winter. And my hope is that both influenza, RSV is tough right now, but that influenza could be muted because of that. So, you know, again, I think it's no different than in the pre-COVID era when people are in your waiting room and potentially come in as a febrile child and some people have sick call and then you don't mix them with well visits. And I think the same sort of things need to continue that we've been doing over the last year or so. And uh, Mick, one more question. Can chiropractors sign religious exemption forms? No, they cannot. Thank you. Um, there are several more having to do with the vaccine. Um, I think one clarification that will be helpful here, um, because the COVID vaccine is not currently covered by the new act, um, and if it is required for schools, I think it's important for everyone to recognize at this time that, and just to clarify that the current public act does not cover uh, exemption for the COVID vaccine. Right, it's not, it's not a requirement for school. There is no discussion at this point in time to require it for school. So, um, you know, there's, there hasn't been any discussion at all on the state level to make COVID vaccine a requirement for school. Logistically, it would be very difficult to do so when the vaccine is only licensed for 12 years of age and older. I think, you know, this is really an important point uh, to not confuse our audience. Thank you, Anne-Marie, for bringing that up. So the Connecticut's focused on existing pediatric immunization, and these are vaccines that are, have been around for decades, are tested, we know have prevented polio and measles and rubella and, and have tr tremendous public health advancements. So these are not um, emergency youth vaccines, anything like that. And uh, to Mick's point, COVID's over here for now. Let's see where that goes. Let's look at the data from Pfizer in terms of and other companies in terms of younger children, and we'll figure that out as it comes. But right now, this is all about our existing pediatric immunization programs. Thank you. Thank you. Shifting over to you, Dr. Schreiber. Um, Dr. Altman asks, regarding the varicella reactivation after the Pfizer vaccine, is there any data on whether these patients had previously received a shingles vaccine? I, I, not that I'm aware of. And so it's a great question. Does shingles vaccine prevent that if you happen to get it from immunization with COVID vaccines? I don't know the answer. I think this will unfold if it turns out to be correct. 
that there's a slight increase uh, in shingles um, in immuniz large immunization, immunized populations, we'll need to tease that out. But I'm not aware that we've done that yet. Um, how far along is the Moderna, is Moderna with uh, clinical trials in those under 18 years? Uh, they're far along, but not as far along as Pfizer. Uh, so I understand that Moderna, I think later this fall, will also be going to the FDA. So they have a lot of clinical trials and also down to six months, as I, as I recall. So I think soon, but uh, not as soon as Pfizer. Dr. Zelenaritis asks, is the Mississippi death rate per 100,000 population or per 100,000 test positive? I believe it's per population, Ed. Um, it's an astronomical number. Uh, and um, again, one in 300 plus 370, or I forget the exact number of Mississippians have died COVID-19. I mean, it's just quite remarkable and sad. Uh, other states are not quite as badly hit, but it's, it's getting bad in Idaho and Wyoming and some of those rural states as well. So totally preventable. I only wish uh, the New England data were translated across the country. Thank you. What do you recommend for an adolescent with an underlying autoimmune issue with a PEG allergy and taking the mRNA vaccine? Well, first off, I think if the allergy is um, documented by an allergist with skin testing, there are ways you can desensitize to that. So if it's PEG only, uh, you could have an allergy immunologist desensitize the individual and get immunized. And that might be the way to go, particularly with Delta circulating so much. And then remember, uh, the J&J &J vaccine is available and does not have PEG. So there are alternatives you could use for the individual to get them uh, immune to COVID-19. For the um, third vaccine, if and when that becomes available, uh, will the same brand be required? At the moment, it's only Pfizer. So the answer is yes, at the moment. Uh, remember, Moderna has an emergency use for a third dose for immunocompromised. I know they have third dose data, but they have to get that in front of the FDA. And then I, I believe in the next month or so, probably both Pfizer and Moderna will be allowed for third dose. But right now it's only Pfizer and mix and match is specifically not permitted by the FDA because they don't have the da enough data yet. Um, you may remember months ago, I showed you a small mix and match study where it actually worked great and there were no problems, but it was a very small study. I, I suspect larger studies need to be done. You know, we have um, good models for this. If you look at the H flu vaccine, there are several vaccines out there. The Merck has a different carrier protein than the other companies, yet you can mix and match. And so I'm hopeful as we learn more about this moving forward, remember this is only 20 months old, that we will be able to do that because it's all spike protein. Every vaccine is targeting the same viral piece. But right now you can't. It's Pfizer only, and then Moderna has to get their data in, and then it would be um, hopefully both of those, and you, we're not allowed to mix and match currently. It's a great question. Dr. Arguello asks, um, have ACE2 receptor antibodies been measured in vaccinated people? I, I, don't know the, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's an interesting question and one we probably need to do. Um, but remember, uh, we've not, if you saw the Israeli data, Long haul syndrome is not happening with, and other data we have in the United States, 200 million people, it's not happening with immunized people. That clinical syndrome is happening post COVID when you're sick. So um, it's a good question, but again, it's very early data and it's just looking at people who are very ill with COVID. It's a great study to do. Thank you. You had shown a, a, a table earlier with uh, the effectiveness of Pfizer and Moderna. Are you seeing, and doc, um, Dr. Julie Vigil, um asks if, um, if you're recognizing any breakthrough cases more so with one or the other? You saw, we're not, and you saw the numbers are very similar. It's 88, 90% or 93%. It's, it's, so we're not seeing any uh, differences that are translating to the clinical realm, but I think they're interesting data to have and they may inform future dosing of vaccines. I believe we're out of time. Um, and uh, thank you all of you for what you do every day out there in the community and for tuning in. Uh, email me if there are questions and you see, um, thank you Mick for a very important DPH presentation and his email is there. Closing remarks I have to give you, Grand Rounds on Tuesday. Dr. Chris Hughes on adolescent breast care and pediatric plastic surgery. Um, and that will be on Tuesday for Grand Rounds at Connecticut Children's. Our next 
ask the experts. I am on the clinical service for infectious disease on the 8th of October, and I will not be doing it. Uh, Melissa Santos is going to address mental health pandemic that we're in the middle of with the COVID pandemic and talk about mental health issues in the pediatric community. I think it's a critical talk. Um, that will be October 8th. And then I will be back October for Ask the Experts, October 22nd, and uh, we'll try to have a full review of where COVID is at that point, and we will see you then. Again, thanks for being here. We'll see you on the 8th and also on the 22nd. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye-bye. Yeah.